0: Well, good morning. It's a beautiful day out there. So I'm glad to see everyone has made it through the snow and is uh, worshiping. Uh, It's good to be here. It's good to be with you again. Uh, We're going to resume our uh, study in uh, the prophet of uh, Zechariah before we uh, hear what he has to say to us and the Lord through him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the life, the death, and the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you that it is because of all that he has done and continues to do through your Holy Spirit that we can stand forgiven, that we can go to you at any moment for help, for encouragement, for grace, for mercy, forgiveness, for strength, and for courage. Father, we thank you that you continue to bless us as a church. Our desire, Lord God, is that we may take the light that is Christ, who calls us also the light of the world, a city set on a hill, that by the things that we do, others may see them and then give glory to our Heavenly Father who reigns and rules over all. So we thank you that you have given to us a life, that you have given to us eternal life, and that you have given to us a mission, that there is always a constant encouragement and source of supply in this mission through your spirit, through your word, that as participants in the great community that is your church, we, Father, find our identity in Christ, we find our purpose in him, we find our unity in him, We find, O Lord God, and receive power through him. So we turn now, Lord, uh, to your word, to this ancient word that still has relevance for us today, that speaks to us of a God who is present in our midst, active in the world, and who invites us and empowers us to take part in his saving activity in the world that he has created and we as members of it, as his church. Help us, Lord God, to receive this word and to apply it with great joy, with great diligence, and with great faith and hope in our God and Father, our Lord and Savior, and the giver of life, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. We pick up uh, Zechariah. Here in chapter 4, he has uh, had already uh, four visions. This is now his fifth vision. And picking up the narrative in verse 1 of chapter 4, Zechariah writes, And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who was awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, What do you see? I said, I see, and behold, a, a lampstand, all of gold, with a bowl on the top of it, And seven lamps on it, with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right side of the bowl and the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered me and said to me, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, But by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts, who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house, his hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These are the seven eyes of the Lord which range throughout the whole earth. And then I said to him, what are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? And the second time I answered and said to him, what are these two branches of the olive trees which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? He said to me, do you Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. Then he said, These are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. As I said, today we return uh, to our study of Zechariah, remembering again that the, the overall theme of the book is strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow, that from start to finish, God is encouraging his people to trust him, Because the plans that he has for them are to give them a hope and a future. That now, remember, the the people to whom Zechariah is speaking are exiles that have returned to the land of Judah, the land of Israel, and now are about the process of having to rebuild, if you will, their entire culture from the ground up. Um, They've got to rebuild the, the foundation, the city walls. They've got to rebuild the temple. They've got to establish again their role of the priesthood, and begin to come together as a nation. And so having returned to essentially piles of rubble all around them, the prophet, first uh, both uh, Haggai, who's a contemporary of Zechariah, and Zechariah himself, are speaking to this nation that the past is the past. And what lies before them is the future, that God has prepared for them and has been preparing for them even during the 70 years of their exile. That the Lord wants his people to press on toward the future, straining forward toward what lies ahead. In that way, you see that Zechariah anticipates what Paul said in Philippians three thirteen to 14, in which we spent the, first, the last three weeks looking at. That forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, God is encouraging his people through the prophet to press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The whole book of Zechariah is a forward-looking book. It's a book that encourages the people who are there. The past has happened. It has been a painful past. But before you lies a great and glorious future as God's covenant people, that he is not finished with his nation, that he is not finished with his people, that he has plans for them. And these plans include a hope and a future. And so they look around these piles of stone and rubble as they even lament the reason why these things happen. God is speaking through the prophet a word of hope, a word of encouragement, and most importantly, a word of grace. Remember, too, that Zechariah begins with a a series of eight visions, all taking place in the same night. All eight visions are connected by a common thread, that God's presence dwells in the midst of his people, and he will continue to dwell with them, even as they seek to rebuild and move forward into the future he has planned for them. We saw in the first vision, in chapter 1, Zechariah sees a, a rider on a red horse, and we're introduced to the, this rider as the angel of the Lord or a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the second vision, Isaiah sees the God scattering Israel and Judah's enemies, that he will plunder the nations that plundered his people. And then in the third vision, there is this marvelous scene in which Jerusalem expands to an immense size, so large, in fact, that no... Physical wall can protect the city or encompass it, but God Himself says, I will be a wall of fire around you, and I will be the glory in your midst. And then in the, in the fourth vision, Zechariah sees the high priest Joshua standing before the, if you will, the judgment seat of God, Satan accusing him, and Joshua himself dressed in filthy garments. And the Lord speaks and rebukes Satan. And he forgives Joshua, that forgiveness represented by the fact that he removes Joshua's filthy garments and he clothes him with pure vestments, puts a clean turban on his head, symbolizing the fact that through forgiving Joshua the high priest, standing in this place of God's people, that God has indeed forgiven the nation. And that they are now ready to serve him with purity and devotion, and that this vision of Joshua the high priest looks forward to the future ministry of, and really even now, the present ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ as our great high priest who stands in the presence of God Almighty, prays for us, intercedes for us as an eternal reminder of the sacrifice paid for our salvation, our forgiveness. And then in this fourth, in this fifth vision, here now the prophet sees a golden lampstand with a bowl on the top of it And seven lamps on it. And on either side of the lamp he sees two olive trees. And I think we have a slide for that. So that's sort of a stylized vision of what Zechariah may have seen (laughs) in terms of an artist's rendering of that. You see the lamp there in the middle with the the lights and then the trees. The vision of the lampstand points forward to the role of the Holy Spirit in the revitalization of the nation which is represented by the lampstand, the two olive trees, under the leadership of Zerubbabel. So we'll take a deeper dive next week into the meaning of the two olive trees, who Zerubbabel is. We'll see how that all interconnects with the vision. For for today, I want us to really focus on the the, the symbolism and the meaning of that golden lampstand, to focus our attention on that. And to get at the meaning of the lampstand by asking three very basic questions What is it? (laughs) Why is it there? And then what does it mean? So, what is it? Why is it there? And what does it mean? Well, the the golden lampstand, uh, if you know your Old Testament, you know uh, that it is really the menorah. Um, The menorah, if you read back, go back to Exodus 25. The menorah essentially is an an elaborate candelabra or an elaborate candlestick. It was designed to represent a tree, much like the the tree in the Garden of Eden. It had a trunk, central trunk, and then out extending out from that central trunk were branches, three on either side. And at the top of each of those branches was a little uh, lighted candle. So you had the three and then the one in the middle. Now, it was a very important part of the furniture that went inside the, uh, the tabernacle was the menorah. Uh, Exodus 40 uh, tells us that the menorah was located opposite the table of showbread, uh, just to the right of the altar of incense, which was in front of the Holy and Holy. So, Justin, if you show the next slide, it gives you a sort of a schematic of where it is. So you can see uh, the location of that. Now, the menorah, Where it's located is is vital. Because what it does, there was no other source of light inside the tabernacle. It was completely dark except for that uh, seven-stick candle. It lighted the way not only to the altar of incense, but it also lighted the way, as you see, to the Holy of Holies, behind which this very thick curtain was the Ark of the Covenant, where once a year the high priest would go in and he would pour blood on the cover of the ark, uh, representing the forgiveness of God's people. So that's the importance of the menorah in the history of Israel with regard to the temple and the forgiveness of the people and and the the sacrifices and so forth. But here's the thing. Go back to the original picture of the menorah, uh, if you would, Justin. Justin. The menorah that Zechariah sees does not resemble anything at all like the menorah that's depicted in Exodus 25. Besides that, it's not even inside the temple. The menorah is, for all intents and purposes, the menorah is outdoors. It's shining, if you will, in public so that everyone can walk in its light. This is key, as we'll find out later on. So that's what it is. What he sees is a menorah outside the temple, completely different than the menorah that was designed by Moses or, or designed, given to Moses and crafted by the, the two craftsmen. It's outside, and it has this constant supply of oil. Now, why? So that's what it is. Now why is it there? Well, the simple answer to that is, It's there in order to receive the oil that's being supplied to it by these two olive trees. So that there's this constant never ending supply that the light therein will never go out, which is also key and we'll find out why that's important later on. So what it is is the the menorah, why it's there, it's to receive the oil that keeps the lamps lighting. Now, what does it mean, right? Rubber meets the road. What's the application of this? How does this affect us? Well, if we take Paul's words seriously, I think he says it in Romans, that the things that were written in former times were written for our instruction, then these words that are in Zechariah are not simply written for Zechariah's generation, but are written for us. So when we look at the menorah, there are some who will say, well, the menorah means it's just God uh, encouraging Zechariah with regard to the rebuilding of the temple, the restoration of the priesthood, and the reconstruction of the nation. Others will say that the the menorah represents the the presence of God in the midst of his people. That is, God is encouraging Zechariah that he'll be that wall of fire, that he'll be the glory in their midst. But because God is self-sufficient and does not need outside sources to fuel, if you will, his light, because God himself is light, that meaning is likely not the one that's intended. There is another uh, interpretation, another sense of how to understand this, and that is the menorah does indeed reflect or represent the covenant people of God, which in the Old Testament is temporarily expressed through the nation of Israel and then later on in the New Testament as the church. That according to this view, the menorah has a a double symbolism. On the one hand, it represents the church. On the other hand, it represents the church's mission. Think back to the, the CG we did on the Sermon on the Mount. And in Matthew 5, when Jesus is talking to his disciples, he tells them in Matthew 5, you are the light of the world a city set on a hill cannot be hidden let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father in heaven and then there is this as well from what paul says in philippians 2 this is philippians 2:14 through 16 do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of god without blemish In the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world as you hold out the word of life. So you think of Paul's encouragement to the Philippians, he could just as well, if you were to transport him back in time, he could just as well be speaking to Zechariah's generation. To do all things, start rebuilding, start putting your lives together, start rebuilding your community and your identity without grumbling or complaining or disputing among one another so that you may be blameless and innocent, not like your forefathers who did grumble and did complain, and many of them died in the wilderness and some of them died in exile. But you have an opportunity to start afresh, to start brand new with a fresh supply of oil from God that will enable you to shine as stars or lights in this crooked and perverse world. So here we are as the church with that same supply, that same source, lighting us and illuminating us with, protect, with regard to our mission to shine as lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, holding out, if you will, holding out the word of life here Here's why we are shining. Here's why we are doing these things. So that you may know the one who is the light of the world. So, to repeat, the menorah represents the the church and the church's mission. In fact, from here on in, we're going to read Zechariah through the lens of the New Testament, seeing that the message that God is delivering through Zechariah to his generation is also his message to us as his church. The menorah represents the church and its mission. Now, it's time for a short, very short, lesson in Reformed theology. We are a church that is committed to a Reformed view of the scriptures. As such, we, as a church, believe that the church began long before the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. We believe the church has existed since Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David. That under the old covenant, the church was temporarily expressed through the nation of Israel. And then now, the church, which includes Jews and Gentiles, exists under Christ. One uh, Reformed scholar explains it like this, that Reformed theology does not contrast Israel and the church. It doesn't set them in opposition to one another. Rather, the church has always been the Israel of God, and the Israel of God has always been the church. So it, it may sound to... I know some of us have maybe come up in churches where there is a certain plan for Israel, and then there's another plan for the church, and never the twain shall meet. But under reform understanding of the Scriptures, the Israel of God is the church, and the church is the Israel of God. They are one. So what God speaks in the Old Testament, He is speaking to us. We don't make a, a wall separating the two. We see the Scriptures as telling one consistent story, one entire story with, re, with regard to a people of God. When Jesus fulfilled the old covenant by his obedience, by his death and resurrection, he closed the curtain. He brought the curtain down on the old covenant and he lifted the curtain, if you will, on the new covenant. He inaugurated a new covenant. This is why on the day that Christ is crucified, the veil in the temple separating the holy place from the holy of holies is split from top to bottom. Because it took a divine human savior to represent us before God and be that perfect sacrifice. So that now we have full access into the very presence of God through our great high priest who is also our sacrifice. So under this new covenant, the church does not replace Israel. It expands it to include whoever confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord and believes in their heart that God has raised Him from the dead. That under the new covenant, salvation is not a matter of being born into a religious family or a particular nation, even a spiritual family or a Jewish family or even a Christian family. Salvation is a matter of being born again by grace through faith in Christ. And once again, rather than replacing Israel The church expands it to include all of those who would respond on the day of Pentecost when Peter gives his sermon. He says, repent to be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. That message was given to Jew and Gentile. And Paul expands this for sure in his letter to the Galatians. So the church has always been the Israel of God, and the Israel of God has always been the church. We believe this because the scriptures teach it. It's verified in what Paul says in Romans 11, that God grafted in the Gentiles, non-Jews, into the people of God. Grafting is not replacement, it is addition. So that's why he can write in Galatians 3, there's neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor female, there's all or one in Christ Jesus, he says, and if you're Christ's, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to his promise. Just meditate on think about that in terms of Paul writing to these Galatians, these Gentiles, telling them that you may not have physical ancestry to Abraham, but through Christ you have a spiritual ancestry. So the menorah represents the church. It represents the mission of the church but what's the answer to the ultimate question that we've been asking? What does it mean? Well, if we take the menorah to represent the church, then broadly speaking, it represents God calling His covenant people to a wholehearted, soul-strengthened, full-bodied trust in the power of the Holy Spirit to carry out its mission in the world. That the fuel for this mission is amply supplied by God as represented in the two olive trees And embodied in this, we'll see, Christ figure that we know as Zerubbabel. That it's embodied as well in that marvelous text in verse 6. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. That here is Zechariah given what seems to be an insurmountable challenge, and Zerubbabel as well, and even Joshua the high priest, standing amidst the rubble of a crooked and perverse world. How are we going to rebuild? Not by might, not by power, but through a reliance and the empowering of the Holy Spirit. So how am I to raise my family in the midst of a twisted and perverse generation? How am I to raise my family in which my children may get their identity more from their social media feed than by my trying to instill in them their identity comes through Christ? You do that not by might, not by power, but by the Holy Spirit. How do I walk into the office or the place where I work and shine as a light in the midst of that place? Not by my own cleverness, not by my own design, but by trusting in the power of Christ and His Holy Spirit to help me bear witness. How do I bring peace into a situation where there are people who are at each other's throats? Not by might, not by power, but by a reliance and dependence upon God's Spirit. How do I trust God for my daily bread? How do I trust Him for my daily provision? How do I trust Him for my health? How do I make sure that I can do all things that God requires of me? Not by might, not by power, but by reliance on the Spirit. We are a generation of very self-reliant people. I mean, the Holy Trinity of uh, being an American citizen is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And all three of those things while true in the sense of giving us the opportunity, can also be very wearying because they, they lay a burden upon us that it's up to you to find your own way. It's up to you to derive your own happiness. Zechariah says, not by might, not by power, but by the Holy Spirit. Will you find life? Will you find liberty? And will you truly pursue a happiness that will last I'm always impressed by the fact, you know, everyone is. if you're a sports fan, you know that Tom Brady has resigned, and he has seven Super Bowl rings. And I remember reading an article that after he won his fourth, four rings, he, they asked him, are you satisfied? He says, oh, no, I want another one. And he got another one. And he got another one. And I guarantee you that even though he's, doesn't feel mentally, ready for the challenge of preparing for another season, if he, if he could, he'd go for that eighth ring. We feel like that too. If I had this, then I'll be happy. Once I get that, I'll be satisfied. And then you get that. And then you look around and you say, I want more. Because our culture is telling us to value ourselves and our achievements on a, by, by a standard that is foreign to what God has laid out. So not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, tells us that whatever we need to do what God has called us to do, God will provide. That he is telling us that his presence is his provision. It's a mindset, it's a heart attitude that Zechariah is addressing here. That God is telling us he will give us everything we need to face and to overcome whatever challenge will stand in our way, that he is equipping his people with the ever-present, ever-growing, ever-encouraging ministry of the Holy Spirit. A menorah is designed, it's built to shine. So is the church, and so are God's people in it. So our mission is to shine as lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation by holding Standing on and holding out the word of life. to do that, amply supplied by God's Holy Spirit, the, world, <clears throat> the world's a dark place. It can be, a very dark, can be a very lonely place. And for people living in the dark, those of us who've, who've lived through blackouts or in places where you don't have light, light is absolutely essential. Light is tremendously comforting but it's also threatening. We are called to shine as lights in the world, to speak and to live out the truth. One scholar writes about Zechariah's words here that Jesus' great commission is a menorah mandate, a charge to the church to shed abroad the light of its gospel witness, followers of the light of the world, are to be lighting individual menorahs, multiplying lampstands all over the earth. That's who we are. That's our mission. And we shine because Christ has taken residence in our hearts through His Spirit, and we can now reflect that light outward. As as someone said, you take the grace of God that we receive vertically, and we bend it out horizontally, and we share it. It's not to say that this is easy, because it's not. You tell someone about Jesus and you shine a light of truth into their life and into their lifestyle. It hurts because light exposes sin. Light exposes us to the judgment of God. This is what Jesus is talking about in John 3. In describing his own mission about God so loved the world that whoever so believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Jesus goes on to say we forget the other part of that because he goes on to say this is the judgment. We like the fact that whoever believes in him shall not die but have everlasting life. But the following part, Jesus lays out, if you will, he puts it on the line. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world. He's speaking about himself. We just read it in our call to worship. The light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it. So that his deeds may not be exposed. But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. Some people will hear the gospel. They will repent and believe. Some will ignore you. Some may even call you names you never knew existed in the English language or in any language, for that matter. And yet our mission remains the same. Keep shining, because the same gospel that announces judgment upon the unrepentant is the same gospel that announces salvation to the lost and repentant. God will give us everything we need to carry out this mission. Lastly, in his commentary on this uh, text, Uh, Old uh, Old Testament scholar uh, Meredith Klein, I I had him for a course when I was in seminary. Uh, Klein has written a book called Glory in Our Midst uh, about uh, Zechariah 1 through 8, the the visions. This is what Klein writes. It says, "...the same light which pierces the darkness in judgment is the same light which illuminates the path to salvation for those lost in darkness." This gospel witnessing function of the menorah, uh, this uh, gospel witnessing function of the menorah people is readily discernible in the situation of the menorah in the temple. It was located between the altar of sacrifice and the mercy seat, a place suggestive of atonement and gospel pardon. The mission of the Old Testament menorah is to call the nations to Jerusalem, the holy city, to the altar of atonement, and to the throne of grace. And I love this last part. The mission of the menorah community, that's us, old and new, is to light the way to the Father's house. What a privilege for people who are lost and dying and seeking relationship, seeking fellowship, seeking connection. We light the way to the Father's house. We show them this is the way. I'll take you there. And you can meet him through meeting his son. Because if you've seen the son, you've seen the Father. And God willing, if you see me, if you examine my life, you'll see Christ reflected in what I am and what I do. And I can show you, with the Spirit's help, who Jesus is. We can go to the Father's house. It was uh, in a humorous way to illustrate this. When we lived in Canada, I think it was the first or second Christmas we lived in Canada, we noticed that uh, everyone liked to have a, put a wreath on their door, and then they would have a light that would shine on the door so everyone could see the wreath. So I, it was my responsibility to buy the light that would shine on the door. So I went to the local hardware store, and I bought a 150-watt spotlight. Yeah. You opened the front door and I was like... <laughs> sunglasses in the middle of the night. But I'll tell you this. When you turned the corner on John Street in Richtown, Ontario, you knew which house was ours. You may come on strong in in telling people who Jesus is but they will have no doubt to whom you are pointing they will have no doubt about the source of that brilliance because you have the privilege we have the privilege and the responsibility of lighting the way to the father's house not by might not by power but by god's spirit You think about that, let's pray. Our Father who is in heaven, we thank you that you have given to us this great and glorious mission. We thank you that you have given us your son who lights the way to the Father's house and we by following him can be that light as well. We pray for the help and the assistance of your Holy Spirit that we would fulfill this glorious mission that we would have and be that, that menorah community shining as lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, holding out the word of life, shining the way to the Father's home, because there our Savior has prepared for us a room. Father, we ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.